Welcome to the Legal One podcast brought to you by Legal One, the leader in school law training. Legal One is part of the NJPSA and FEA family, so we're thrilled to be offering this podcast to you as a way to help you gain a greater understanding of critical legal issues. We want to provide you with convenient, easy access to essential information. Each episode is approximately 30 minutes or less, so it provides a timely way for you to get important information. In each episode, we're going to be reviewing crucial legal principles based on case law, statute, regulation, or other key guidance. We'll talk about why that issue matters today and how the law has evolved. We'll talk about key steps in working with parents and other important stakeholders to positively address the issues in question and know how to get a greater level of understanding of those issues. So let's get started, and thank you so much for joining us for the Legal One podcast. Welcome to this episode of the Legal One podcast. My name is David Nash. I am our Director of Legal Education and National Outreach for the Foundation for Educational Administration and oversee our Legal One program. Today's session is being brought to us in partnership with Arthur J. Gallagher Insurance and Risk Management Services, and it is part of a larger series that we are doing uh, to address issues of equity in the law and the impact on our public schools. So that partnership is so critical, and we are uh, very uh, pleased to have Arthur J. Gallagher helping us to raise the level of awareness when we're addressing these issues. Very happy to have with me today a very special guest, John Worthington, who is the coordinator of special education law for us here at Legal One. Uh, John, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, thank you, David, and uh, hello, everyone. It's great to join you today. So in today's episode, we're going to be focusing on understanding legal liability under the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination. And we want to make sure that everyone involved in our school system in the state of New Jersey understands why this is such a critical uh, law for uh, everyone involved in schools in the state of New Jersey. So the New Jersey Law Against Discrimination is one of the broadest uh, anti-discrimination laws anywhere in the country. It's been in effect since 1947. Um, it provides very strong protections for individuals from discrimination in places of public accommodation, which of course include our public schools. Um, and it includes broad protections, not just for adults, but for students um, in our public schools as well. Uh, the law against discrimination has been amended many times over the years. Uh, so there are many protected classes uh, that fall under the law against discrimination, including race, ethnicity, gender, religion, disability. In 1991, the legislature included sexual orientation as a protected class uh, that we certainly need to recognize. In 2006, the legislature expanded the protected classes to include gender identity and gender expression um, as areas that are protected under the law against discrimination. We have had recent expansions. Uh, one expansion um, called the Crown Act uh, provides specific protections for individuals from discrimination based on hair texture, hair type, hairstyle, when those factors are linked to race or ethnicity. Uh, so very important to understand that extension. Uh, we have strong protections built into the law for new mothers as well, um, and making sure that we don't have policies that are discriminatory. Uh, we have strong protections under the Equal Pay Act, which is also part of our law against discrimination to make sure there is no discrimination in the pay uh, that is being provided to 
um, school employees and others as well. Uh, so very important that we understand the scope of the law. We're going to discuss a number of those issues as we go through this particular session. Um, but John, as we get ourselves started, uh, maybe you can give our listeners an idea of your background and some of the ways um, potential issues regarding the law against discrimination might arise in the school setting. Uh, certainly. Thank you, David. Um, by way of background, um, just like David, I'm an attorney. I was with the state of New Jersey for 30 years. So I was a deputy attorney general representing the Department of Education for 10 years, worked at the department for 20 years, uh, state board appeals and controversies, mostly in the office of special education, overseeing policy. Uh, at the end of my career, I was the state special ed director. And then five years ago, I joined David here at the Legal One office. And as far as when you're looking at the LAD and claims that you can arise under that, keep in mind, and my focus is typically students with disabilities, when you're looking in that area, there are a lot of other federal laws that also protect those with disabilities, not just students with disabilities. So you have the um, Individuals with Disabilities Education Act, you have the Americans with Disabilities Act, you have Section 504 of the Rehabilitation Act of 1973. All of these laws, along with other Title VI, Title IX, other federal laws that protect those with disabilities, they have basically overlapping jurisdiction with the law against discrimination. And so in various areas, something that someone might do that's inappropriate could be a violation of multiple laws, including the New Jersey law against discrimination. So you could have state and federal remedies when you're looking at the same violation, um, inappropriate discipline of students, whatever it might be. There's overlapping jurisdiction and therefore overlapping consequences in those areas. As we begin our discussion, I think it would be useful to help our listeners understand the way a discrimination claim that is brought against the school district under the law against discrimination would be analyzed. Uh, so one of the things that we want to understand is sort of the process that a court would go through in looking into a potential claim against the school district. Uh, so, John Worthington, um, typically when we're looking at these issues, we would start with whether or not the individual is in a protected class um, and is alleging discrimination based on that protected class. Uh, so those are very important threshold questions that we would want to ask. Yes, correct. You have to first, like you said, you, you went over the different protected classes, very expansive. I think it's important to note that, too. New Jersey's law against discrimination covers more explicitly covers more categories of persons uh, than the federal laws do. And so it's, a, you know, like you said, it's a very broad law. And so certainly the first piece of the analysis is what protected class or classes might you be a member of? And then you would have to look at what is the impact? What was the action that was taken? Uh, how did that impact those, the person or persons raising the claim in that class? So there are times, of course, when school districts become aware of disputes that are happening in schools, either between um, the adults, the staff members, um, or students, or some combination um, of staff members and students. Sometimes there will be a complaint that's raised, um, but it doesn't really have to do with any protected class. Uh, you might have someone say, boy, so-and-so uh, is making me uncomfortable. They're creating a hostile educational environment. And then when further questions are asked, 
you might really learn that the issue is a personality dispute, um, is a conflict over another issue that the two have been involved in and has nothing to do with a protected class. Uh, so, John, uh, one of the mistakes that we sometimes see school districts make is to assign every dispute to an affirmative action officer when you may have an issue that really has nothing to do with any of our protected classes under the law against discrimination or federal law. Yeah, that, that will come up. I, I think a good example might even be in the area of bullying. Oftentimes, you might be looking at the HIV laws in New Jersey saying, oh, you know, is this based on a, a characteristic that the student has, when sometimes that's not the case at all. It could simply be a conflict between, well, as you know, it could be staff members, it could be a conflict between students. Um, sometimes people simply don't get along, they disagree, actions aren't necessarily being taken based on the fact that you're in a particular protected category, sometimes there's just conflicts between people. So that's why when you note it, you have to make that initial analysis of what's the category. Also, is the action that someone's taken based on the fact that you have that characteristic, you're in that category? Oftentimes, that is not the case. It's simply, a, again, a disagreement, conflict, whatever you want to call it, between people. So you have to dig deeper to say just because someone has a certain cat category characteristic doesn't necessarily mean every action someone takes, everything they say, everything they do is based on that. You do need to analyze what was done, what was the impact, was it based on that, You, you someone with a disability, a racial or ethnic group, a gender identity, whatever it might be, or was it not based on that? So you have to kind of go through a several-step analysis to figure out what was the action, what was the impact, was it based on that category? It's not simply if you have a certain characteristic, anything that happens must have been based on you having that characteristic. That's such an important point. Um, you know, when we're thinking about employees, for example, perhaps an employee receives a negative evaluation, um, but there are sound reasons for that negative evaluation based on the person's teaching performance um, or their performance in whatever job assignments they have. So the fact that somebody is in a protected class uh, based on you know gender, race, ethnicity, religion, disability, whatever it might be, uh, we can't assume that the adverse action is because they were in that protected class. And certainly that would be true for students as well. Perhaps a student is suspended. Student might be um, of a particular race, gender, ethnicity, religion, or have a disability, but it might not have anything to do with the action that was taken. That's a good point, David. And if you look at there was recent guidance issued by the New Jersey Attorney General and the State Department of Education. They issued it um, together and they were basically talking about that and they set forth a three-part test where you're you're initially looking at, okay, you can make the assertion that something happened based on a characteristic. At that point, you get to where the district, in this case, will say the school district, would then be able to say, no, this is their non-discriminatory reason we took the action. This was the basis. Um, and I'm kind of simplifying this, but then the third part would be, is the district's reason for taking the action a pretext? And were they really doing it based on that characteristic or not? But it's sort of a burden shifting analysis that goes back and forth. So you can't assume everything that happens based on the characteristic. There are certain burdens of 
proof and persuasion that occur when you're analyzing it, whether it's the state analyzing that, courts analyzing it, whatever it might be. Um, you have to look at that, look at the proffered reasons, and then determine whether the reason by the one that's basically, we'll call them the defendant here that's being alleged to have done something inappropriate, is their reason a pretext or was it a legitimate reason for their actions? That's a great point. And of course, uh, to further complement the analysis, uh, we do want to consider whether harm might have resulted from someone's actions, even without intent. So John, can you talk a little bit about how a court would analyze both whether something has a um, is disparate treatment, where we're treating somebody differently because of a protected class, and talk about um, disparate impact and whether a policy or a practice that might be facially neutral could still raise issues under the law against discrimination? Certainly. So, yeah, um, the treatment, that would be basically you're doing something based on that characteristic. You're taking the action, the adverse action in this case, based on the characteristic. But sometimes when they do the analysis, they call it, you know, facially neutral. You're doing something, you're applying it equal to everyone. But when you analyze it factually, you see that one group is being impacted more so than others, or maybe it's the only one being impacted. And you might not have even intended for it to impact any particular group. It's facially neutral. We have a policy that um, effects happen. You know, this is how we do this procedure. This is what we do. And that's perfectly fine. But if you factually determine that there's a certain group, uh, we have a set procedure. It's hard to think of an example for how you establish a club and you need to fill out certain paperwork, for example, but students that maybe are multilingual learners want to form a club and they can't fill out the paperwork because they're still not English, you know, fluent yet. They're not able to do that. And so you can't open a club or start one until you fill out all these forms, this paperwork, go through these processes. But perhaps in certain groups, like in that example, they might not be able to do it. And so you weren't intending to target a group, but the impact of your action was that they're not able to start a club as easily as a group, you know, of somebody in any other group because of this, uh, this characteristic. When we do have a potential issue um, under the law against discrimination. Sometimes school officials um, might have a temptation to try to informally resolve the issue. So you have um, an employee come and complain about a colleague to the school principal, and the principal's first instinct might be to bring those two employees together and mediate the dispute that is going on between them. Um, can you talk about the dangers of that approach when somebody has alleged discrimination based on a protected class? Yes, yeah, certainly. I, I mean, I understand the impulse to try to work it out in your building. And so it's not necessarily even bad intent when you do that. But basically, under these laws, you can't try to work it out yourself. You have an obligation to make certain reports, to address things following certain procedures. And so even though it might be well intended to try to mediate between the two people, that sometimes might even do harm, depending on what's being alleged, subjecting the perhaps the victim to further 
embarrassment or the like by having them mediate, which is why sometimes you wouldn't have two students in a bullying case mediate the case, the victim and perpetrator, even if you thought this was a good way to work it out. There are certain procedures in the law. You need to follow them, make the correct reports to the right people and look into those things, following the procedures, um, that inclination to informally address things. Again, it may be well intended, but it's not the way you have to do it. You have to follow the procedures of the law. Once the allegations have been made, you have to follow them. And to build on that, uh, typically what you would want to do in a school district is make sure that if there's an allegation based on a protected class, that we are formalizing this process. So if an employee says they're being treated unfairly uh, because of some protected class, you really want to make sure that the affirmative action officer is made aware of that and you follow the formal investigation process in the district. Again, um, the understandable impulse might be for a school principal to handle any issue that arises in their building, um, but you don't want to do that if your policies call for a centralized affirmative action officer to be conducting those investigations. Yeah, that's a good point, David. That's what you have to remember. You have the policies and procedures for a reason. And so you don't want to start deviating from their legal requirements in the state. You appointed an affirmative action officer. You need to follow the procedures document it and that's important and especially in education law you have to document everything you did you got to show you followed the correct procedures you did everything when you were supposed to the person who was supposed to do it has to do it so you can't as the principal take over the aao's responsibilities and sort of informally handle it yourself you have to follow what's in the board policies procedures and which in state law you have the affirmative action officer for a reason and so you need to utilize those procedures and again document all the steps along the way, investigate appropriately, make determinations, and take appropriate action formally. It can't be an informal process. It has to be done in accordance with law. So our uh, state Supreme Court did clarify back in 2007 that the New Jersey law against discrimination also protects students and not just adults. And that was a very important landmark decision, LW versus Tom's River School District. Um, and that case involved a student who was being singled out and, uh, by all accounts, bullied by other students starting at the elementary level because of perceived sexual orientation. Um, the alleged bullying continued into middle school and into high school. In that particular case, uh, there were allegations that were raised against the district that the district was failing to take appropriate steps to protect that student and violating the law against discrimination. Um, part of the school district's defense in that case was that every time an issue was brought to their attention, they responded under their code of conduct um, and didn't ignore the issue. They were not deliberately indifferent to the issues that were being raised. But in that case, the New Jersey Supreme Court said, we are expecting more than you to simply show that you're not deliberately indifferent, which would be the standard under federal Title IX claims. Instead, the court said we are supposed to be taking measures that are reasonably calculated to end the harassment. And the court pointed out that if you're taking certain steps over multiple years and they're not working, and the student continues to be harassed and continues to be bullied, it's not very reasonable to simply do the same thing over and over again. 
Uh, so John, can you talk about how it's not enough to simply follow your code of conduct? It may not be enough to simply punish those after the fact um, in order to meet your legal burden under the law against discrimination. Certainly, David. I think your point, that was an excellent point. Doing the same thing over and over does technically show you made an effort, you did something, but you, I think the gist of this decision or one piece of it was you have to adapt, you have to look if, if what you're doing isn't working to address that, it's not enough under the law simply to keep doing or trying the same thing over and over and being surprised that it's not working. You have to think things through, um, come up with new ideas, how to address the behaviors. Like you said, you have to be aware of what's going on. Even if bullying claims weren't made, you have this obligation as a district to know what's going on, the climate and culture in your school, you have climate and safety, you have safety and climate teams and the like. You have to be aware of things and you have to take appropriate steps utilizing appropriate resources to come up ways to address it. If what you tried had no impact and the same things continue to happen, then you need to develop a new plan to address that different way to take action, whether it's against the perpetrators, against the school climate, addressing school climate as a whole, you have to come up with a way to address those issues. So one of the issues that arises in school districts uh, might be the problem that um, we never expect it, and all of a sudden, it's upon us. Uh, so, for example, there was a case a few years back in uh, South Jersey uh, where there was a student wrestler getting ready for a wrestling match, um, and that wrestler is out there for um, everybody in the stands to see, and a referee uh, tells this uh, wrestler that Either you submit to have your hair cut right here, right now, um, and for us to cut your uh, dreadlocks, or you are going to forfeit this match. Um, and a, a horrible situation that the wrestler was put in by the official. Um, and yeah, in that moment, didn't want to let down his team. In the moment, um, did allow his hair to be cut. But the harm that was caused by that incident spurred um, a complaint. The attorney general of the state of New Jersey investigated that issue and determined that the way it was handled by the officials uh, violated the civil rights of that particular student. And it also spurred the legislature to clarify the law to say that we cannot discriminate against individuals because of hair texture, hair type, hairstyle. Um, and to handle a situation the way it was handled here now has been clearly um, identified as a violation of the law against discrimination. So, John, um, on this issue, you know, one of the challenges that might occur is that you have school officials in the stands who might see other adults who are violating the rights of kids and might need to step in. And that's a, a difficult spot for those school officials to be in. Yes, David, that's a, a good point. I, and your point about clarifying the law, I think, was important. The attorney general said it already was violated. The Crown Act just made that a little more clear. But this same issue has come up in another case in North Jersey where things were happening in the stand. School officials were there. Um, use of 
the N-word in appropriate language and how the superintendent slash principal address that. You do have that obligation to protect the rights of your students, not just during the school day, but at school-sponsored events. If you're aware of things that are happening, especially, you have no excuse for not addressing them in the moment. And so, you know, this one may have created a difficult situation. It wasn't clear prior to the Crown Act um, whether or not hairstyle and, and the like texture can be a discriminatory or you know, a protected category. Uh, but certainly, if officials were there, it might have been incumbent on them to step in and try to at least intervene. And again, my understanding of how this proceeded was the official said, do it. The kid agreed and a trainer did cut his hair, but nothing ever indicated any school official tried to intervene and object to what was going on. I mean, it was ultimately found and the, the official was suspended, maybe terminated from officiating, but at least suspended, act inappropriately. Like you said, the attorney general investigated didn't matter that the Crown Act hadn't been enacted yet. He said the law was broad enough to cover that already. That was more of a clarification law, but um, there is that duty to work to protect your students. And this again was a little different. It was different districts in a tournament, I believe. So a lot of districts, you may or may not have had an official there, but there was that overarching obligation and a state legally permitted entity, the NJSI. They certainly had officials there, so there were other public entities that uh, arguably needed to step in and act, but oh, to act, it wasn't clear whether there was something inappropriate. It seemed inappropriate, but perhaps those observing it weren't sure what they could or could not do in the moment. That's a great point. So the NJSIAA, you know, is the governing body for inter interscholastic athletics. Um, and, you know, the hope would be that in a situation like that, uh, officials from uh, that governing body would also recognize responsibilities. Uh, but the law has now been clarified on that issue. So um, certainly we shouldn't have any repeat of incidents like that. Um, I did want to mention one other uh, recent expansion in the law against discrimination uh, under the Equal Pay Act. Uh, sometimes uh, the way we see discrimination issues play out uh, when it comes to hiring um, are real disparities in uh, the hiring uh, practices that have occurred. Um, so, for example, you might have two equally qualified candidates who are vying uh, for positions in a district. Um, one uh, is coming from a district uh, where they were paid a, a you know very high salary. And they want to come to the new district, but only if they're starting with a higher salary. So that person wants to start on step six, seven, or eight. Um, and the district says, we want you so badly, we'll start you on step six, seven, or eight. Uh, somebody else coming from a district where perhaps they weren't paid quite so well, but has the same level of experience, same qualifications, uh, might accept a position on step one. Um, John, that can raise a real issue. Um, if the district had two equal, equally qualified employees, and let's say uh, the male employee is given the higher starting salary in the new district simply because they had a higher salary in a prior district, um, under the Equal Pay Act, the person who had equal qualifications would have a potential claim against that district. 
Certainly they would. And that's interesting. I think that's been something that's happened a lot over the years is you look at the salary of the person coming in and you base the salary you're going to offer on that. So I think the Equal Pay Act was important in that regard to clarify that you have to treat people equal based on credentials, not based on what you're making coming in. You're not even allowed to ask what the salary is coming in now. And so I think that was an important clarification, correction, however you want to term that, because I think it was a common practice. Here's what you make now. We'll give you that plus X amount to give you a small raise. And so it was a huge factor. How much did you make coming to a job, which had a lot of disparities in the salaries people got? It could look like you're doing it based on gender, race, ethnicity, and the like, or it could be circumstantial that the higher paid person was male or female or however it might have worked out, but it did result in disparity. So this is requiring look at credentials and then you pay equally based on the credentials. Don't look at the salary they're coming with. And that's it, it'll create consistency, I think. And probably over time, if you were inconsistent in how you were treating some groups and it was done inappropriately in one district and you came to the next with the higher salary, it perpetuated itself, even if that district wasn't doing it based on gender, race, or anything else. Because if you were just doing it based on sheer numbers, you in inequitably treated people with equal credentials simply because someone had the fortune of earning you know, more at the prior district. So one final point that I'll raise as we think about these issues, um, it's important that school districts not simply be reactive um, under uh, New Jersey law, every school district is required to have a comprehensive equity plan, um, and that requires uh, school officials to look at every aspect of a district's operations, uh, from the board policies that are in place, to hiring practices, to curriculum, to facilities, to how we respond to uh, discipline issues, the opportunities for students to have access to high-level courses, to participate in athletics, and other extracurricular activities. So really every aspect of what we do. Um, John, can you just uh, comment on the importance of taking uh, the comprehensive equity plan to heart and using it as an important opportunity to proactively look at all facets of a district's operations? Well, certainly, and I think that's important. You can complete the plan, set it on a shelf and check a box and say, I've done it, um, which, I don't even think it's within the spirit of the law. You can say I technically comply with the law by creating the plan, but it's really an opportunity to look at a lot of different areas. Like you said, it's so broad. It covers basically everything a district is doing, and you're using a team from the district. You have parents and the like uh, on the team. It's a great opportunity to look at what's happening. They review all HIB complaints um, as far as what happened in the bullying cases and all. So they got a lot of information that they're looking at in these different areas. And it's an opportunity to make sure things aren't getting past the district unintentionally. Even you didn't realize in the hiring practices, certain things were happening. I wasn't looking at the data and noticing who's actually in my gifted and talented or AP or other type courses. And so it gives you that opportunity to look at what's happening and have a group together to come up with strategies to address that. How can I increase the participation in um, 
again, higher level courses with different racial, ethnic, other groups, um, you know, looking at those areas to see where there's inequities and how can I improve it? If I see disparities in hiring, how can I attract more employees from different racial or ethnic groups to better reflect my student body? That's always a goal to try to reflect the student body and your staffing. And so it, it gives you a great opportunity to look at it with a group of people, you know, concentrated on those issues and a fresh set of eyes. And so it's a it's an opportunity for districts if they utilize it appropriately and don't consider it a task and more so an opportunity to improve what's happening in the district. And the better things are happening in the district, even if you want to look at it from that standpoint, it's less likely to have any legal liability or issues. If you're doing things appropriately, it benefits the district that way, too. So, John, I want to thank you for being part of this important discussion today. As I mentioned at the start of this episode, uh, this episode is part of a series of episodes that we are doing in partnership with Arthur J. Gallagher uh, Risk Management Services. And it really is helping us to look at issues of equity, the law, in our schools from a number of different perspectives. Uh, very important uh, that we think about how we address those issues, that we pay attention to our data, and that we act proactively and not simply respond to issues that are occurring after the fact. So for our listeners, I want to thank you for taking time to be with us today. Uh, be safe, be well, and we look forward to having you with us on future episodes of the Legal One podcast. Thank you for listening to today's episode. If you would like more information on the topics we covered, a full list of episodes, or a preview of upcoming topics, please visit our website at www.njpsa.org legal1nj.